Section 35 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 2, by Washington Irving. Book 7, Chapter 9 like as an assemblage of belligerent cats gibbering and caterwauling eyeing one another with hideous grimaces and contortions spitting in each other's faces and on the point of a general clapper clawing are suddenly put to scampering rout and confusion by the appearance of a house dog so was the no less vociferous council of new amsterdam amazed astounded and totally dispersed by the sudden arrival of the enemy Every member waddled home as fast as his short legs could carry him, wheezing as he went with corpulency and terror. Arrived at his castle, he barricaded the street door, and buried himself in the cider cellar, without venturing to peep out, lest he should have his head carried off by a cannon-ball. The sovereign people crowded into the market-place, herding together with the instinct of sheep who seek safety in each other's company when the shepherd and his dog are absent and the wolf is prowling around the fold. Far from finding relief, however, they only increased each other's terrors. Each man looked ruefully in his neighbor's face, in search of encouragement, but only found in its woe-begone lineaments a confirmation of his own dismay. Not a word now was to be heard of conquering Great Britain, not a whisper about the sovereign virtues of economy, while the old women heightened the general gloom by clamorously bewailing their fate, and calling for protection on St. Nicholas and Peter Stuyvesant. Oh, how did they bewail the absence of the lion-hearted Peter, and how did they long for the comforting presence of Antony Van Corlear! Indeed, a gloomy uncertainty hung over the fate of these adventurous heroes, day after day had elapsed since the alarming message from the governor without bringing any further tidings of his safety many a fearful conjecture was hazarded as to what had befallen him and his loyal squire had they not been devoured alive by the cannibals of marblehead in cape cod had they not been put to the question by the great council of amphictyons had they not been smothered in onions by the terrible men of pyquag in the midst of this consternation and perplexity, when horror like a mighty nightmare sat brooding upon the little, fat, plethoric city of New Amsterdam, the ears of the multitude were suddenly startled by the distant sound of a trumpet. It approached, it grew louder and louder, and now it resounded at the city gate. The public could not be mistaken in the well-known sound a shout of joy burst from their lips as the gallant peter covered with dust and followed by his faithful trumpeter came galloping into the market-place the first transports of the populace having subsided they gathered round the honest antony as he dismounted overwhelming him with greetings and congratulations in breathless accents he related to them the marvellous adventures through which the old governor and himself had gone in making their escape from the clutches of the terrible amphictyons but though the stuyvesant manuscript with its customary minuteness where anything touching the great peter is concerned 
is very particular as to the incidents of this masterly retreat the state of public affairs will not allow me to indulge in a full recital thereof let it suffice to say that while peter stuyvesant was anxiously revolving in his mind how he could make good his escape with honor and dignity certain of the ships sent out for the conquest of the manhattoes touched at the eastern ports to obtain supplies and to call on the grand council of the league for its promised cooperation upon hearing of this the vigilant peter perceiving that a moment's delay were fatal made a secret and precipitate decampment though much did it grieve his lofty soul to be obliged to turn his back even upon a nation of foes many hairbreadth escapes and divers perilous mishaps did they sustain as they scourged without sound of trumpet through the fair regions of the east already was the country in an uproar with hostile preparation and they were obliged to take a large circuit in their flight lurking along through the woody mountains of the devil's backbone whence the valiant peter sallied forth one day like a lion and put to rout a whole legion of squatters consisting of three generations of a prolific family who were already on their way to take possession of some corner of the new netherlands nay the faithful antony had great difficulty at sundry times to prevent him in the excess of his wrath from descending down from the mountains and falling sword in hand upon certain of the border towns who were marshalling forth their draggle-tailed militia the first movement of the governor upon reaching his dwelling was to mount the roof whence he contemplated with rueful aspect the hostile squadron this had already come to anchor in the bay and consisted of two stout frigates having on board as john jocelyn gentleman informs us three hundred valiant redcoats having taken this survey he sat himself down and wrote an epistle to the commander demanding the reason of his anchoring in the harbor without obtaining previous permission to do so this letter was couched in the most dignified and courteous terms though i have it from undoubted authority that his teeth were clinched and he had a bitter sardonic grin upon his visage all the while he wrote having dispatched his letter the grim peter stumped to and fro about the town with a most war-beckoning countenance his hands thrust into his breeches pockets and whistling a low dutch psalm tune which bore no small resemblance to the music of a northeast wind when a storm is brewing the very dogs as they eyed him skulked away in dismay while all the old and ugly women of new amsterdam ran howling at his heels imploring him to save them from murder robbery and pitiless ravishment the reply of colonel nicholas who commanded the invaders was couched in terms of equal courtesy with the letter of the governor declaring the right and title of his british majesty to the province where he affirmed the dutch to be mere interlopers and demanding that the town forts etc should be forthwith rendered into his majesty's obedience and protection promising at the same time life liberty estate and free trade to every dutch denizen who should readily submit to his majesty's government peter stuyvesant read over this friendly epistle with some such harmony of aspect as we may suppose a crusty farmer reads the loving letter of john stiles warning him of an action of ejectment he was not however to be taken by surprise but thrusting the summons into his breeches pocket stalked three times across the room 
took a pinch of snuff with great vehemence, and then, loftily waving his hand, promised to send an answer the next morning. He now summoned a general meeting of his privy councillors and burgomasters, not to ask their advice, for confident in his own strong head he needed no man's counsel, but apparently to give them a piece of his mind on their late craven conduct. His orders being duly promulgated, it was a piteous sight to behold the late valiant burgomasters, who had demolished the whole British Empire in their harangues, peeping ruefully out of their hiding-places, crawling cautiously forth, dodging through narrow lanes and alleys, starting at every little dog that barked, mistaking lamp-posts for British grenadiers, and in the excess of their panic metamorphosing pumps into formidable soldiers, levelling blunderbusses at their bosoms. Having, however, in despite of numerous perils and difficulties of the kind, arrived safe, without the loss of a single man, at the Hall of Assembly, they took their seats and awaited in fearful silence the arrival of the governor. In a few moments the wooden leg of the intrepid Peter was heard in regular and stout-hearted thumps upon the staircase. He entered the chamber, arrayed in full suit of regimentals, and carrying his trusty Toledo, not girded on his thigh, but tucked under his arm. As the governor never equipped himself in this portentous manner, unless something of martial nature were working within his pericranium, his council regarded him ruefully, as if they saw fire and sword in his iron countenance, and forgot to light their pipes in breathless suspense. His first words were to rate his counsel soundly for having wasted in idle debate and party feud the time which should have been devoted to putting the city in a state of defence. He was particularly indignant at those brawlers who had disgraced the councils of the province by empty bickerings and scurrilous invectives against an absent enemy. He now called upon them to make good their words by deeds, as the enemy they had defied and derided was at the gate. Finally, he informed them of the summons he had received to surrender, but concluded by swearing to defend the province as long as heaven was on his side and he had a wooden leg to stand upon, which warlike sentence he emphasized by a thwack with the flat of his sword upon the table that quite electrified his auditors. The privy councillors, who had long since been brought into as perfect discipline as were ever the soldiers of the great Frederick, knew there was no use in saying a word, so lighted their pipes and smoked away in silence like fat and discreet councillors. But the burgomasters, being inflated with considerable importance and self-sufficiency acquired at popular meetings, were not so easily satisfied, mustering up fresh spirit when they found there was some chance of escaping from their present jeopardy without the disagreeable alternative of fighting they requested a copy of the summons to surrender, that they might show it to a general meeting of the people. So insolent and mutinous a request would have been enough to have roused the gorge of the tranquil Van Twiller himself. What, then, must have been its effect upon the great Stuyvesant, who was not only a Dutchman, a governor, and a valiant wooden-legged soldier to boot, but withal a man of the most stomachful and gunpowder disposition? he burst forth into a blaze of indignation, swore not a mother's son of them should see a syllable of it, 
that as to their advice and concurrence he did not care a whiff of tobacco for either that they might go home and go to bed like old women for he was determined to defend the colony himself without the assistance of them or their adherents so saying he tucked his sword under his arm cocked his hat upon his head and girding up his loins stumped indignantly out of the council chamber everybody making room for him as he passed no sooner was he gone than the busy burgomasters called a public meeting in front of the stott house where they appointed as chairman one doffew Rohrbach, formerly a meddlesome member of the cabinet during the reign of william the testy but kicked out of office by peter stuyvesant on taking the reins of government he was withal a mighty gingerbread baker in the land and reverenced by the populace as a man of dark knowledge seeing that he was the first to imprint new year cakes with the mysterious hieroglyphics of the cock and breeches and such like magical devices this burgomaster who still chewed the cud of ill-will against peter stuyvesant addressed the multitude in what is called a patriotic speech informing them of the courteous summons which the governor had received to surrender of his refusal to comply therewith and of his denying the public even a sight of the summons which doubtless contained conditions highly to the honor and advantage of the province he then proceeded to speak of his excellency in high-sounding terms of vituperation suited to the dignity of his station comparing him to nero caligula and other flagrant great men of yore assuring the people that the history of the world did not contain a despotic outrage equal to the present that it would be recorded in letters of fire on the blood-stained tablet of history that ages would roll back with sudden horror when they came to view it that the womb of time by the way your orators and writers take strange liberties with the womb of time though some would fain have us believe that time is an old gentleman that the womb of time pregnant as it was with direful horrors would never produce a parallel enormity with a variety of other heart-rending soul-stirring tropes and figures which i cannot enumerate neither indeed need i for they were of the kind which even to the present day form the style of popular harangues and patriotic orations and may be classed in rhetoric under the general title of rigmarole the result of this speech of the inspired burgomaster was a memorial addressed to the governor remonstrating in good round terms on his conduct it was proposed that doffew Rohrbach himself should be the bearer of this memorial but this he warily declined having no inclination of coming again within kicking distance of his excellency who did deliver it has never been named in history in which neglect he has suffered grievous wrong seeing that he was equally worthy of blazon with him perpetuated in scottish song and story by the surname of bell the cat all we know of the fate of this memorial is that it was used by the grim peter to light his pipe which from the vehemence with which he smoked it was evidently anything but a pipe of peace End of section 35